Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody and welcome back to another all new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants week after week through their many vaunted titles. I'm Nico and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And today we have a fun one for you guys. We have X-Factor, the final issue of Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood, and a little more on the first issue of Children of the Atom. Kicking things off is myself, Maddie, and Nathan taking a look at the second part of this incredible Siren Morrigan taking down X-Factor narrative. And it was incredible to get to see iBoy shine in this issue. Plus, who could turn down an amazing Rachel and Polaris fight? Now, we had an amazing time with this segment, and we hope you guys enjoy listening. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me at NicoAction on Twitter and Instagram. That's NicoAction at N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey, it's Nathan. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA. Hey guys, it's Maddie, and as always, you can find me over on Instagram at the Basely Covetous Man, and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. And I'm Jonah, and you guys can follow me over. I'm <laughs> but we're here to talk about what is easily one of the most celebratory experiences I get to have each month, and I hope it is for everyone else. X Factor by Leah Williams and David Baldon continues to be a powerhouse of a title sending kind of shockwaves through the X-verse with its limitless willing to shake up its own status quo. Now, X-Factor number eight finds the team perched in a sort of complex predicament where inexplicably everybody's dead, and we can be pretty sure that it's the Morrigan, the doing of the creature that is inhabiting Siren, leaving the recently resurrected X-Factor team to take on the unbelievably powerful mutant mystic hybrid. Now, the last issue was a super focus on Dokken in a way that we have to be grateful forever that we got that much Dokken half-naked running around. But this issue saw an unbelievable amount of focus on everybody's favorite ocular-based mutant. This was like iBoy's Minute. Now, how did you guys feel? Like Before anything else, this was really, truly iBoy's first chance to shine. How did you guys feel about seeing this background player elevated to this incredible height? Oh, God. I, I've been waiting for this, in a sense, because if you look at the X Factor cast and you look at the journey that we've been taken on by Leah Williams, by David Baldione over the course of the last seven issues leading up to, to current, to issue number eight, we've gotten a lot of spotlight on characters that we already know, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but we all know who Polaris is, and there was some Polaris-heavy, Polaris-centric activity going on. This issue, or possibly in the beginning of Seven, I read them concurrently, uh, we get a lot of North Star uh, characterization. So everybody else seems to have gotten time to shine. Last issue, as you said, was primarily docking forward. iBoy has been the odd man out, and I have been waiting 
to see what he can do because I think that if nothing else, David Baldione has such an incredible take on the visual representation of iBoy's powers and to see Leah get to shine through this character was ultimately rewarding. Yeah, I, I would say like I have been madly in love with iBoy since Tina Strange Generation X. So like every time he gets a focus in like a spotlight, I am loving it. Um, kind of to piggyback on what you were saying, Maddie. Like I love David Baldion's um interpretation of him. It's the first time I've really realized like oh my god, those are all eyes all over the place. Just imagine like like it's amazing what they're showing that he can do. But just like imagine if he gets like dirt in one of his eyes, like ripping out. I could not imagine that. I with two eyes cannot handle like an errant eyelash going in there so dirt in one of like 37 eyes i would actually like maybe jump off a bridge yeah i know that's what i'm like uh and if they're like on his feet and stuff Ooh, wow anyway for dry red eyes try clear eyes <laughs> it has ingredients to moisturize wow <laughs> friend of the pod ben stein I imagine, I'm just on an impression roll today. I imagine that when iBoy gets something in his eye, he just has to like submerge himself into a bathtub. And like, iBoy can't go in a sauna or he'll blind himself. Like, oh, no. he has so many problems. <laughs> but one of the things that made iBoy so impressive this issue, and I can't wait to talk all about the plot, though this was a little bit plot light for an issue of X Factor. Not that that's a bad thing. Different styles of pacing really make a trade read powerfully. So I'm all for books alternating their speed and their uh, kind of content volume. But the art this issue was so stupid good, I really do understand why David had to miss the third issue and why sometimes the book doesn't ship each month. For the art to look like this and to have this level of consistency, I could just pass out. Like, the art this issue was so dynamic. And it was something that we talked about with contributor Josh in the green room. Josh was crazy about the dynamics of this issue. And one of the things that I love about David Baldon's artistry is that he is less concerned with your framed panel needs than he is with the notion of telling a complete story. That's something that's really hard for artists to kind of break free of you know you think about how the four walls of a panel tell you what's in the panel right they tell you what that frame that sequence moment should be and comics for so many years were panel by panel frame by frame of course in the last 50 years and you know going way back further i'm sure but you know i can only think back to when I really started to see that sort of British invasion, that very Alan Moore transformative point, really kind of break down those panel barriers. And eventually we would go on to get guys like J.H. Williams III, who thinks so little of the border of a panel. And his work on Sandman Overture is so significant that it actually needs fold-out pages to be told properly because it's a four-page spread, because the panel means so little to him. And you think about Chris Boccolo, a master of the art form, and David Baldone, who is brilliant and so new to this industry. It's so incredible to me that he is so able to, like these masters, shed the notion of limitation. And it's in his own way. While those guys do a beautiful job transforming things in sort of a painted way, this read to me like a video game, and I've never had a comic book read like a video game before. 
it, it was absolutely that dynamic sense of motion that that really gives that video game vibe. I wanted to call out specifically while we're riding the David Baldion train, a couple of pages specifically and a couple of examples of panel work that goes completely against the grain in the best way. Page eight of digital is Dokken and Aurora in Dokken's dream when he is submerged to the bottom of the, the pool in the Boneyard's sauna sick ass fucking pool room um the the unconventional panel structure the use of the the bleeding out of the morrigan's power signature coming up through the water and overtaking the panels is in such stark contrast to some of the later iboy pages where it forgoes the use of panel at all and you see the power signature and the visual representation of iboy's multitude of sight really take on the form of the page and then if if we had to cap it at three my absolute favorite which goes right back to nico's reading of this as a video game page 16 of digital the hash marking action sequences between dokken prodigy iboy just making their way through the boneyard trying to escape the morgan and it's in diagonal overlapped interspersed like hash marks it's unbelievable the the competency that david is showing here uh yeah no i have to agree i mean just to add on a few others of my favorites just um like that first scene when aurora gets back to jean paul like without him even saying like why are you wet like she looked wet like and in these little panels like that is astonishingly hard to do it's like the way the hair is and everything my other favorite moment that you didn't call out already would have to be page 18 of digital where they show the boneyard and they show like this big morrigan like haunted thing with it and i'm like it looks so lovecraftian oh my right god there. yes yeah and and even so you know just to just to really look at that panel by panel for a second we get the the large splash of the boneyard with the morrigan creature we have North Star and Polaris midair. It cuts to what would obviously a pet be a panning cut sequence of the entire cast of X Factor in different areas of mid, four, and background. It's it really is just unbelievable. This this was the cutscene before the battle that yeah. I didn't know I needed. No, absolutely. Oh, and just even like turning the next page, I'm like noticing another thing, just like the way he uses Rachel's power signature, like in that next scene with like in Lorna. And I was like, oh my God, these energies are so unique, so different. Like that's got to be amazingly hard to do panel by panel in these. Lines. I have already set the split page on 22, the Rachel and Polaris left and right as my phone wallpaper. Uh, oh. I wasted absolutely no time. It was read, it was saved, it was set, it was done. That is absolutely perfect. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of my favorite things that digital trades have done for me is they make it possible to go into the back section and I just go to the variant covers and I just screenshot them all and <laughs> then I kind of crop them a little bit to take the information off and then I just make my background a rotating gallery of cover pages <laughs> because <laughs> I'm like the worst human and like I, I need my pages virgin. Like, I desperately need virgin pages, or I can't have them as backgrounds. Oh, same, 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 same. Because, like, then I get so into the dialogue on the page, 
and I can't break free of it. <laughs> um, you know, and talking about these incredible dynamic visual pages, something came to my mind that kind of blew me away just talking about it. iBoy, Prodigy, and Dokken are in many ways the three main focuses of this issue. There's a lot of incredible Lorna and a lot of incredible Rachel, but the both of them have received a lot of screen time over the last couple of screen time. Do you hear what they've done to me? have achieved a lot of panel time over the last couple of months in a way that perhaps Prodigy and iBoy haven't. Now, with three of these characters being predominantly men of color and two of them being queer men, and then our other characters being so incredibly dynamically powerful women, there is something so unique about X Factor. It's not just the queer book. It's not just the book that has room for women, but all of the men and women look different. And that's something that we've praised on a number of titles lately. But I feel like there's something to be said about the fact that too frequently, the diversity of physical form falls to the artist to put into new characters, right? One of the reasons that we said that America Chavez made in the USA number one was able to have so many non-white characters is because so many of the characters in that book were created for that issue, right? So in that regard, they're able to make that transition. That also gave them room to put in a lot more body types than the standard body types that have been around since the 60s and 70s. In this issue, however, Rachel is a product of the 80s. Lorna is a product of the 60s. Now, a number of the other characters are much more recent, but Lorna and Rachel in particular could be victims of that sort of generic all-women kind of look the same in comics. I've repeatedly joked that I'm glad that the Marvel Essential books have become less significant as other hardcover and trade editions have become more affordable. Because how many times, and Nathan, I'm sure you're going to be with me on this, how many fucking times do you have to go through an Essential 15 times to go, wait a minute, if her hair was green, I would know that was Polaris. Otherwise, oh, I have yeah. no idea who that is. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Those things are so bad for that. I have the essential Dazzler ones, and I'm like, oh, what? what is this? What is this? Like, who is this? Who is this? Yeah, and it's no. not even that the art is bad or anything. It's no. that it's preserved poorly, and it's presented in a way it was never meant to be presented. Absolutely. So I want to know how you guys feel about Rachel and Polaris having such visual, physical identities. And again, that goes to the heart of something David was kind enough to share with us in our interview with him in January, where he shared that one of the ways that he and Leah were able to come up with this book was she gave him a style guide. She literally gave him, this is what these characters would wear. And I feel like this is a book where the art tells the character and informs the reader who the character is. How do you guys feel? This is this is absolutely the best translatable fashion comic that I can think of. And that's the best way that I can think to put it because it's not it's not straightforward. It's not generic. Everybody has unique style. Everybody brings that consistent unique style to every single issue. It translates in their actual X-Factor uniforms. It translates in their street clothing. And so in that way, I can look at, I can easily, granted, there, there are marked distinct visual differences between these characters. It's not that Rachel and Polaris look the same, even down to hair, but... I could look at this from a mile away in black and white before colors and just tell you exactly who is who. You know, just by the power in their body language, the the expression in their face, the 
The fashion really does drive this book for sure. But moreover, it gives every character such powerful body language. Oh, no, I definitely agree. Going back a little bit to the fashion, even the dress that Morgan is wearing, you can tell, obviously with coloring and everything too, but just by the shape of it, you can tell that that was siren plus kind of thing. If you went through and like did an essentials reprinting of this, like Rachel and Lorna, it's like you could so easily tell them, like not even just the difference between the two of them, but you could tell that it's supposed to be them. Rachel, especially with that jumpsuit she's wearing in the battle sequence, it screams Rachel. Just screams a little bit. Screams a little days of future past to me, but with like an updated kind of You know, and and just to jump back a moment because I'm I'm scrolling through here, and as we talk about the fashion and the the representation of it in the book, I I never thought that I would be upset to see somebody put Dokken in clothing. But every, <laughs> every time we get Dokken in a shirt, I'm just like, ooh, like I want to find a shirt that fits me like that. You know what I mean? Uh, right. David Valdeon just and and I cannot praise it enough. He just understands how fabric conforms to the human shape. It is uncanny. If he if he were to leave comics, I would be devastated, but he could easily begin a career in fashion. There, There is no doubt. As long as he takes Israel Silva with him, I'm fine <laughs> with whatever he chooses to do because it cannot, cannot, cannot go another second with all of us praising the colors without us taking yes. a moment to say Israel Silva's actual color on this book is some of the most vibrant, transformative, powerful coloring I have seen in a very long time because so much of what you're saying, the attitude, that presentation, the dynamic reality that is these these larger-than-life figures, the way the clothes hug Dokken is made even stronger by Israel Silva's delicate color work. And I know it's delicate, and it's delicate sort of the way um, – uh, garbage can fire is delicate. It's really, a, a, it's, a, it's abrasive and it's aggressive. And like, if you look at these colors and you don't think they're meant to fuck with you, you're not looking at them right. Because these colors are so much more saturated than the average comic these days goes. You know, yeah. I'm doing this big Thor reread and Thor is one of those characters who has so many visualizations and so many visual factors. And I'm looking at the Jason Aaron run. And so that's bringing me to some Ron Garney. And Ron Garney can basically use a black marker per panel and it wouldn't bother him. Right? <laughs> that to him is a great use of his time and energy. And when you get to somebody like Nick Klein, who is this painted watercolor expert, and then you make your way to the brilliance of Russell Dowderman. And the full bright volume of his colors that match his work. To go to this and to take a look at this, I just read like 50 different artists on Thor and nobody's saturation comes anywhere close to this. Think about Secret Wars from 2015, which is in so many ways the benchmark for an event right now, still almost, you know, a little over half a decade later. The colors on that are this muted sort of subdued reality. The colors here absolutely want to get your attention. I just couldn't go another moment without taking a look at just the breadth of color on digital page nine from the red that surrounds Dawkins face to the overwhelming brown and then that soft blue with the hints of yellow. 
I just, my husband's a colorist. If I didn't go this crazy on colors, he would never live with me again. So I just needed to stress how terrific the colors in this book are. <laughs> no, what what I love about the colors is they go from just standard classic like superhero fare to um, the way they help the art achieve that almost vertigo look in some of the battle. It's it just like it's all working so well together to really get some of that body horror in, in between just the regular, like I said, the regular superhero stuff. You know, and I, I while I struggle to call an example to mind, I think about how a number of books that I I consider to be excellent uses of color seem to have something of a through line, you know, a very blue shaded book, a very yellow shaded book, uh, a, a variety of, you know, pick three colors and that's what we what we rooted this issue and that's what we keep coming back to. There doesn't seem to be that in this issue for me, but in the absolute best way, there there is, you know, it is it's such an excellent complement to as we discussed earlier the dynamicism of the variety of page layouts that we're getting. But to see, you know, an iBoy heavy page be such a heavy use of greens and purples with white in between that that stark negative space, the the battle sequences, the I mean, hell, let's go to uh the hatchery. Let's go to Arbor Magna. The the beautiful warmth and gold tones that everything is shrouded in is such an unbelievable job and and such an unbelievable parallel to every time a new artist takes on a location that we've seen since House and Powers, it always makes my heart flutter a little bit. David Baldion and Israel Silva taking on the hatchery. Was that for me this issue? I heard everything you said and I was like searching my brain because I'm like, no, he's absolutely right. There's always a color through line. There's always a color through line. And I wanted to look up a book that did so. Eternals, the current Eternals series by Matthew Wilson on colors. That whole thing is a fucking blue filter like an episode of Supernatural. It is it's, it is so blue. It's so it's, blue. It's so blue. And that sort of color story, right? That kind of way the world sits, that's so true to our real lives. When you go to the woods, everything have these lush greens and blues, but when you go to a city, there's a lot more slate and gunmetal to it. But there are certain cities who the vibrancy of that city is inherent to its identity. There are just some places that need color. And the fact that we're talking so long about the color story in this book, the art about in this book, speaks volumes about what makes X-Factor special. So many titles, we either focus on the art or the writing or the characters. Here, we find ourselves hard-pressed to get time to talk about all of it enough. Of course... There isn't enough time in the day to talk about just how fucking awesome it was to finally get to see the X-Factor team in action. It, this issue made me realize in roughly four pages that I don't think we've seen the X-Factor team actually kick anybody's ass in a while. Is that just me or does the X-Factor team, this OP team, like, I mean, this is pretty much the Squadron Supreme of Mutants, right? They, they just don't kick asses enough. And I wonder if that's because they can't. Like, if you unleash Rachel and Polaris on somebody, they better be the Morrigan. Otherwise, you just you just turn them into a hash brown. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man. Uh, no, I don't think we've really seen them in a battle together uh, since before Ten of Swords, for sure. Like, oh, my Lanta, like, when, like, they had some battle scenes when they were in the Mojoverse. That was the last time I really remember them. Yeah, that was, that's all I could call back to myself. And, you know, thinking back just one issue, going back to issue seven, there wasn't a, a terribly dense amount of action in that. But what we did get was also so nuanced. The battle between the Morrigan and Doc was all in motion it was it was completely devoid of like static you know punches landing you know those kind of moments and in that way i i loved it you know it it definitely i was i was fed off of it for sure but to see everybody nearly everybody come together in some capacity in this issue and kick a little ass was was outstanding i just love seeing iboy it's part of the action i'm like yes finally oh and i think part of that is because i couldn't imagine how he would be part of the action yeah, same. Like, <laughs> I kept thinking, are we going to find out he has the power to blind people? I've shut off your eyeball! <laughs> I've shut off your eyeball! Like, he's some sort of horrifying master of the electrical grid, and he's just going to take power away from you because your bill was late, right? So there was something so incredible, though, about the fact that on a team with Northstar and a team with Dokken, the two people who took out Siren were Polaris and Rachel. You know, Northstar's top speed is maybe too top speed for me. Like, he's too fast. Not really, but maybe. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, I can't imagine somebody that Northstar isn't too much for. And with that said, I imagine Polaris and Rachel could take Northstar down. So, the two of them being necessary to take on Siren and the Morrigan. Number one, I know she's enhanced by the Morrigan, but this kind of super-duper upgrades Siren. I know she's always been a powerhouse. I'm a big Siren fan. You know, I read so much of that classic X-Force. I've read all of it, technically. And I just don't want to admit it. So I've read so much of it. And I'm so familiar with her personality and her power levels. This is still an upgrade. This is even an upgrade from the Peter David era, I think. Because I don't really know too many people who can handle Rachel and Lorna at the same time. Oh, no, definitely agree. Definitely agree. I don't think we really got to see much of her power level as Lamorgan because she kind of just like quickly the series ended after that. But I, I love how they continue developing even her unborgan powers, like the hypnotism with her voice. Like that was so amazing to me when they introduced that. And I'm loving that they're still keeping it going. Maddie, you're essentially kind of new to Siren, right? Because I know your ex reading has holes in it, but I feel like she has managed to sit in each one of those holes throughout time for you. <laughs> No, she she absolutely has. I I'm not ashamed to admit that I was just like, oh, girl banshee, girl banshee. When I when I was first introduced to her, I I, I think it's I think it's a little silly. She banshee, she banshee, she banshee, she banshee. So I yeah no I she definitely has sit has has managed to sit neatly in every one of those gaps for me. I had no wealth of experience in reading her. And even I was kind of like, okay, the Morrigan must be really powerful, but are you that powerful? Like, it was a little bit of a reach for me, not in a bad way, just in the way that makes me concerned for Siren's health that such a powerful being could inhabit her body. And also, not for nothing, I, I would be really curious to know in in a future issue how the Morrigan came into play here, because as far as the Morrigan is concerned in Marvel Comics, I don't have any experience with that. Is this the first time that we are seeing this deity, or has she been around? 
Well, as far as I am aware, this deity's first major contributions to the X-Men universe were in the pages of Peter David's X-Factor. Peter David's X-Factor, which had been a continuation of his original X-Factor run. He had done a short miniseries for Mark uh, Panacea uh, over in uh, the Marvel Knights office, Madrox 1 through 5, which saw the return of Rain and Guido to Madrox's life. The team would then go over form X-Factor investigations with such current mainstays as Monet and Richter. That team would run some ridiculous number of issues, like a good hundred issues, before being terminated somewhere in the 260s, shortly after Peter David's health was a thing. And, you know, it's just natural that when a book runs that long, it kind of resets. Now, the Morrigan material was set up in Peter David's X-Factor. So, as far as I know, the Morrigan is a character that there isn't a huge well of depth in the Marvel Universe to dig from. There's some, but you're not at a huge disadvantage being disadvantaged here. Well, that's good to know. I love how it answered the one question that they set up oddly in the handbook where they were talking about how alternate reality mutants aren't set for resurrection, but at least Rachel being resurrected kind of put my mind at ease. Yeah, I would have been really frustrated if characters weren't resurrected quickly. You know, just with so much thing, so much going on with five right now, I am getting to a point where I'm like, um, are we going to wind up with some complicated resurrection problems? I mean, and Rachel's time displaced. So, like, yeah. I was waiting for a problem there. Well, are, are we like maybe possibly heading into a resurrection kind of no, no land with uh, prodigy with what's going on with him there? I mean, is that kind of what they're hinting at? That's what I'm feeling. Yeah. And I mean, after the whole thing with Kitty had trouble resurrecting, but it, it turned out to have nothing to do with her gateway problems. It's... <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm just like, there's just too many hiccups in the resurrection process right now. Not really, because we need them. It keeps the story moving, and it keeps the story fresh and imaginative. Now, I'm curious. Where do we see this Siren storyline going in the future? She's got the Morrigan trapped in her. All of a sudden, mutants are magic. There's so much interplay between Excalibur and X-Factor. Perhaps Excalibur and their magic crew can do something, or maybe even Siren finds herself over in the pages of Excalibur. What do you guys think about the future of Siren and even the future of the X-Factor team? Okay, you guys know who's on the cover of the next issue, right? Right, 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 right? Dazzler. So like... Uh, Lila Cheney, right? And Lila Cheney, right? But like... Oh wait, there was someone better? else on that cover? Oh, ooh. Was there... Was there I, I didn't notice. Have you mentioned this cover before? Have you mentioned that you love this person? I haven't... I haven't noticed. Is there, I, don't, is there... I don't know if I know who they are, but no. Yeah, but like, who else is the perfect person to go up against Siren? But Dazzler. But yeah. So she'll help. She'll help save the day. She always does. Queen, sound queen will. Hmm. I'm I'm just seeing it now for the very first time, and it is it is one hell of a cover, and it makes me very excited for presumably next month. And I think one of the things that I find so fascinating about the way X Factor is progressing, and what I'm hoping for from its future, is the Mojo Verse is a world of a million screens. It turns out iBoy's mind is a world of a million screens. The next issue sees Lila Cheney and Dazzler, which is a pretty big media blitz. You know what I mean? This is. This is really a book about seeing things a million ways and seeing multiple personalities inside of Siren, seeing the multiple minds that have imprinted on Prodigy, seeing the multiple ways that characters that are even tangential to the series, like Speed, are being pulled, the multiple people Rachel has to be in her daily life, the multiple roles Polaris plays between Daughter of Magneto and her own woman. There are so many multitudes in every 
fragment of X Factor. The future is so wide open for it, but I still think the one consistent through line, almost like a color story, that we're going to see run through X Factor is the idea that there is no one side of any story. There is no black and white, and there certainly, in this room, is a lot more color variance than we're used to. Hey everybody, Nico here again, and in this next segment, Arturo, Kyle, and Jonah take a look at the final issue of Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood, an experiment in storytelling through art. And this has been a really interesting miniseries that has brought together so many varied talents from across the comic spectrum. This last sequence sees Mystique finally make her way into the pages of Wolverine's life. Now, as a big Jason Aaron Wolverine fan, I think Mystique is a great counterpart to Wolverine. Not that I don't love everything she's doing over in the pages of Hickman's X. This segment was a blast, and we hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kyle, and you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantus82. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. And we hope you survive this experience just like Sauron did, not like those Reavers. Oh, and like Mystique, <laughs> because I don't think Mystique can ever die. Mystique She forever. a bad bitch. You can't kill her. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and today we are covering Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood, the final chapter in this four-part story. We're going to go into all three stories, the first one being The Art of Loss, written by Kelly Thompson, with art by Carrie Randolph. Then we'll go into Reave What You Sow, written by Ed Brisson, with art by Leonard Kirk, and Reds by Andres Mosa. And then our last story will be Sticks and Stones, written by Stephen DeKnight, pencils by Paulo Siquiera, inks by Oren Jr., and Reds, again, by Andres Mosa. All right, let's get into The Art of Loss by Kelly Thompson. And this story does something that I thought was really interesting, and I think all of the chapters could benefit from this. And Kelly Thompson and Editorial take a minute to specify exactly where this story takes place in continuity. And it's in the events after Uncanny X-Men 173. I appreciated that because I think that's like a helpful way of just giving the reader an anchor to know what else is going on in the world as Wolverine is going through this. I think it's a helpful little little note. And I'm the kind of nerd that went ahead and pulled up Marvel Unlimited just to kind of get a sense for what happened in that issue. And for any listeners that are not familiar, I can let you know that this issue was the historic battle between Wolverine and Silver Samurai. It's an iconic fight scene. And and this issue happens directly after it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I hadn't had a chance to go back and read it, but having that explanation of where it fell in the timeline really did help me because I'm pretty well familiar with that particular era so it was nice being able to look at this story and go okay i understand what's happening here why this is happening and it's it's a brief moment in time that we don't really have a lot of information on so this this is kind of pretty awesome i think it also kind of gives you a sense for where wolverine is at in his head the love of his life was killed wolverine's wedding gets canceled and he's heartbroken he's down and out and he's getting wasted somewhere in Tokyo. 
which you know is par for the course for logan yeah i I, this is funny enough this is stuff that i'm also familiar with which is very nice the aftermath of logan and mariko's wedding and that being sabotaged canceled you know all that good stuff of logan never being able to be happy because logan's never supposed to be able to be happy was really nice and for a while after that logan kind of was processing everything and it was a lot of dark brooding a lot of drinking because alcohol doesn't affect him he was uh you know not the best time to be around with so him kind of being a loner off on the dock somewhere in some dark alley in tokyo slash japan really just you know sets it sets the story up so well because that's exactly where logan would be if he didn't want people to find him that or some like really obscure town in like canada which we've seen multiple times in this uh mini series (laughs) well yeah i mean you're writing a logan story right there's certain elements you're gonna you're gonna pick up on and as far as like location let's face it you you're limited to uh, maybe about four spots right we're going to be somewhere either in canada we're going to be somewhere in japan we're going to be somewhere in madripoor or we're going to be at some undisclosed weapon x facility right like there's a pretty good chance those are your your settings and true to form we end up here in in japan another thing you're going to need for these stories is a bad guy and i was reading this on unlimited so i totally fell for the trick of of at first seeing Sabretooth and then you know it's swiping over and then seeing Sabretooth morph into into Mystique was beautiful uh I think we got to talk about the art for a second Carrie Randolph I am not familiar with with his art but my god I am a fan like this Mystique story I thought was so hot like it had such great fight scenes such such a simple style like he does so much with negative space and it just beautiful beautiful artwork great fight scene uh you get the you know mystique and her classic you know iconic look but she's definitely moving and kicking kind of like rebecca romaine mystique level of of acrobatics and i love that i love when when mystique is just kicking ass like this she looks so beautiful and so lethal Oh, absolutely. One of my favorite things, if you're reading digitally on page seven, the second panel, it's a very minimalistic uh, action shot of Mystique jumping. Yes! But there's very little details filled in. And it's just basically silhouette. And it's a kind of art style you'll see floating around. I- I've seen floating around for a while. But here, I think it's just so beautifully done. It's one of my favorite things to see. And it's, as you say, Arturo, there's so much movement that you see with her or Logan that it's really amazing that even with the little with doing a more minimalistic art style for certain panels you still get that really great sense of action out of it so i was really surprised and happy and choosing mystique for the story also is pretty great because this is around the time where uh rogue was battling with her identity of what did she want to be and what did being a mutant mean to her especially with her powers being so unstable and her not wanting to be like that anymore and running away to the x-men mystique was very hurt and i really appreciate there was a certain line where logan says she's probably not going to come back to you for the brotherhood of evil but she will come back to you as a daughter and it was just one of those things where i was really appreciative of the mystique characterization here and i know that mystique and logan have a very tumultuous interesting history with one another and it's just a really nice nod to that I have to echo you two praising the level of motion 
in this particular story and how just just the way that everything seems to be moving just with the the blurring of details and with the rain falling everything just it feels alive yeah and the use of color the i mean the use of red in here i i should say uh is really well done as well i just love how that first shot of mystique transforming from Sabretooth's form into her own form has that almost animalistic view of her eyes and her mouth and you see that a few times during their fight as well and it's it's just such a really cool look one thing that I think we've noted in covering this title is it's like an exercise, right, for the creative team. Their hands tied behind the back a little bit. You're limited to these colors. You have a very small amount of page space to tell your story, and that's and it has to be with Wolverine, and that's about it. Go right. And some of some of these stories have been a lot more effective than others. Some some use of red has been very simple, and it's just literally a black and white comic with red blood in it. And this didn't do either of those things. This like really kind of used it as an accent there's a nine page spread that is just beautiful and it kind of creates this checker effect where like every other panel the background is red and it's just beautiful i mean there are pages in this in this little kelly thompson story that i would frame and put up on my wall just really really top-notch artwork on Patreon, if you're reading digitally, that panel spread, the sixth panel with Mystique doing a backflip, I, I would I would hang oh, that up yeah. in a heartbeat. Yep. For me, I would frame on page 11 of the digital version, the frame where she's jumping off of the the dock. Beautiful. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. The, and the bridge is like in white. Yeah, just mm-hmm. gorgeous. Yeah, going back also again to that panel that Jonah brought up that is just like Mystique's silhouette. It's almost like an optical illusion. Like if you were looking at it out of context you'd be like what the hell am i looking at but there's this like silence in it that is just so beautiful that you can just feel the movement of it yeah not enough can be said for for this art they're very bloody confrontation because i mean they got they really get into it it's a really solid fight it concludes with mystique getting away and then storm shows up in her in her like 80s you know punk rock mohawk look but she kind of sounds a little bit like i will meet you at the monorail storm to me oh, oh, <laughs> right like, like cartoon she, uh cartoon, cartoon aurora yeah she's you know because uh, logan says home night's still young roro and she says that is demonstrably false logan so she sounds very <laughs> proper but it was it was great it was cute it, it's you know it speaks to their friendship like just you know a little storm uh, you're always happy to see storm and then storm is all in black and white except her red lipstick and her red nails and i love it oh. my little headcanon right now is that that's not exactly how the conversation went that's how logan heard it right <laughs> that's how he imagined roro talk sometimes that she does kind of talk a little prim and proper <laughs> <laughs> so let's we, I guess it is a little um i don't want to say uh robotic 
but uh, it's a very interesting way that Storm is speaking. But uh, I am very appreciative of it because it does kind of seem uh, it is oddly comical for her to be so serious about right? this conversation. Yeah. No, yeah. for real. Yeah. May I walk you home? May I join you then? Like she is. It's it's it has to be a deliberate choice because it's not just it doesn't sound natural. And I think that's cool. So I thought it was great. That was for me the strongest story of the three. Not to steal the thunder of our next story, which is Reave What You Sow, written by Ed Brisson. Again, art by Leonard Kirk and read by Andres Mosa. This one, again, helpfully places us in Marvel continuity. This story takes place after the events of Uncanny X-Men 229. So, of course, I went and dug that up, too. And I'm pretty sure it might be the the Reaver's first appearance. What I needed to place was X-Men, I think it's like 240-something. The one where Wolverine is crucified on an X in the in the outback he's been captured by the reavers so as soon as i saw the reavers i was like oh is this like before or after that so this is definitely before wolverine gets caught and it's after the reavers have appeared so that might speak to you know the level of revenge they got on him when they did capture him in in uncanny 240 whatever because wolverine in this story wrecks their ship pretty good and we're in singapore somewhere between japan and madripoor <laughs> and uh <laughs> And Wolverine sneaks onto this boat, this yacht vessel, and just attacks the Reavers. And we get a very specific Reaver, Angelo Macon. So we get a very specific Reaver, and he's definitely in, you know, the Reaver gear, the little headset, the wires, the cybernetic parts. What did you guys think of this this story? Out of the three for this issue, I think this was probably my least favorite. Not to say it's bad. It, to me, I think, just had the most disconnect, because I'm not the most familiar with Reavers, so I don't know if it's just because this was all a little too much about the blood and less about telling a story from Logan's perspective that should be defining Logan's character. I think that's what this entire series is about, right? It's about these stories that Logan has gone through that has defined him to be the man that he is today. And I don't know exactly how this story does that. When I first realized that this was a Reaver story, I was kind of excited because I've, I had been hoping that we would get a story that took place during the Outback era. And then it got weird. <laughs> I, I'm right there with you. Yeah, when we, when we end up in the water and he's talking about like how blood is like a catnip for, for sharks and he's just put so much of it in the water. I was like, we're not about to get a shark attack, are we? And then sure as hell, got shark. a shark attack. And that to me feels like such an unnecessary thing. Like you've got only a few pages. You've decided to tell a story about Wolverine and the Reavers. Focus. And you're focus. <laughs> focus on Wolverine <laughs> and the Reavers, bro. We don't got three pages for you to to do this, you know, shark porn. And and it's and honestly, the worst part about it is it's not even really good shark porn. The art is not bad, but there's no there's no panels here that I was like, oh my god, wow, screenshot of this. I might use that as my, you know what I mean? Like not not a one. They're they're fine. They do the job. You get the sense of what's going on. But I agree with you guys. This one is the one that. Kind of fell 
flat for me because it didn't move you know it, it didn't tell a good or great wolverine story and that's fine if you're gonna just make it a really cool fight that's good but make it a really cool fight you know what i mean like how many pages of mystique and wolverine just thrashing each other did we go through that wasn't a big plot driven thing but it was breathtaking this was just kind of like okay i may be spoiled in the sense that jeff the land shark is my everything and i want all sharks to look like him and when they're not i think they don't look like good sharks not to say that these are bad sharks because but jeff the land shark is my hallmark to be like this is your base you got to start here and you have to work it better but i want to say what i think maybe in contrast to the art of loss i want to bring up something that arturo you said in that the use of red in that story wasn't about just blood they used it in a lot of dynamic different ways but here this feels like the black and white issue where the red is just the blood i personally think that there are areas where the story could have been enhanced if the red had been used less as blood and more as a contrast or an accent color to help drive the message you're trying to say with this i think it could have been way more exciting had the use of red been better placed and not just as blood yeah i agree yeah yeah i almost feel like the use of black was a little overpowering in this story the hatching that the artists did to do the shadowing it really felt like it muddied the art more than it defined it and i mean there there was there were a few pages where it just everything kind of felt like it all melded in together if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Black in any kind of art, whether it's fashion or a painting or drawing medium, it's a color you have to be very careful with because it's the absence of color you lo- you can lose a lot of details in the color black and it's not that it's not a beautiful color you can't use it well but it's a car- it's a color you have to be very particular and careful about because as you said Kyle there are panels in this issue where the black not only is overwhelming we lose a lot of detail and we lose a lot of what we enjoyed so much about the other issue that I think that it um hinders it a little bit and I don't know if it's what exactly about this issue makes me want to say this but it also feels like compared to the first issue this issue feels stiff like the action feels almost claymation-esque like like if you've ever seen um like the making of a claymation movie and it's like they're in a pose and then you take a picture and then you adjust it's kind of that's what it feels like to me yeah i I agree this just it's fine (laughs) that that's my my sizzling review for revolt you so it's fine it's fine it's you know you it won't take you long to read those pages and it's not a waste of your life but you're not going to get a whole lot out of it. as opposed to sticks and stones our final story written by steven denight with pencils by paulo siguera inks by oren jr and reds by andres mosa this one i thought was a delight again this one opens up with wolverine crash landing it looks like did he get thrown out of a plane or what's going on he's like falling through the sky and then he lands and you see some prehistoric you know creatures in the foreground and you think are we in the savage land and when you turn the page yes honey you are in the savage land and sauron is there wearing his jorts and this is fantastic (laughs) this is fantastic this is my one grievance with the krakoan era is that we have had not enough as in not at all any bit of sauron i love sauron i love this ridiculous energy vampire hypnotic prone to villain monologue 
monologuing ridiculous nerd. nerd. I love Oh, he's a nerd. He's I absolutely a nerd in his shorts and I would steal his lunch money. <laughs> I like, love him so much. I love him so much so too. Happy. Yeah. I truthfully I don't I I even though I've probably read the least out of the three of us here, I don't think there I've ever encountered a bad X-Men story in the Savage Lands. They always seem to have at least a decent time. There's nothing ever wrong going on unless you're counting that time that Colossus had a three baby's first threesome and then later had a child. Oh. Right. But the Savage Land is truthfully a lot of fun to go to. Who doesn't like seeing dinosaurs? Yeah. And yep. this issue I don't think is any less fun. And I think for a book that's almost always serious stories, this kind of took a, like a tongue-in-cheek approach a little bit. And I think that's just because Sauron, whether you enjoy him or not, is and whether he knows it or not, I think it's even better when people don't know this, is that he's kind of hysterical yeah. because he's so ridiculous and so dramatic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yep, no, totally. Yep. And and this is this was great because this is a story where like the writer Stephen Denight is definitely in on the joke. You know what I mean? Like he writes Sauron in this way that he's like so preposterous, but he's kind of in on it, and it's just it's awesome. Like he towards the end of it, he's like critiquing somebody else's monologuing. <laughs> Yes, yes, that was great. It's it's Meh, awesome. I've made better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's and he has. Just in this issue alone, he's made better speeches. <laughs> yeah, so Wolverine and Sauron are fighting. Their battle gets interrupted by a T-Rex because when in the Savage Land. And uh Sauron does his his villain best to try to hypnotize the the beast, but he's unable to do so because his brains are petrified into stone, although when Wolverine is inside of him and comes bursting out, though it doesn't look too petrified to me. He comes out all gooey. We don't worry about it. We don't have to get too caught up in the <laughs> in the details of uh, of how petrified or not the brains of this T Rex are. But it all leads them to Garrock, the petrified man. And again, this made me so happy. Like, give me those obscure, you know, throwbacks for a for a hot second there. I swear to God, I thought that Zaladane was going to be on the page so that might be my my one disappointment of this because for over one gleaming second i had hope and that didn't come to fruition but still garrock the petrified man that was like again a nice little throwback i mean he basically is just a rock <laughs> yeah totally oh uh, their battle with him is pretty anticlimactic it's <laughs> it super anticlimactic but really it's it's really not about this story really isn't about the battle it's about the interaction between logan and Sauron. Oh yeah, once they once they stop fighting and and they team up, it becomes a great like buddy cop comedy or something like it's just it's so good. They get blasted by Garrock's eye beams and Sauron, you know, deadpans always the eye beams with this guy. Just great. Yeah. Oh, and then look at saying, I got a cure for that. <sighs> my eyes, my beautiful eyes. It's like honestly, you can't really write anything better than this because this is the funniest tongue-in-cheek i think my favorite thing about this entire issue is that sauron and wolverine are like hold on wait we got to deal with this guy first before we finish any fighting between us this is hold on this this has to pause (laughs) this is the enemy of my enemy is my friend and wolverine and sauron aren't friends and they will never be friends but this would be a very interesting buddy cop movie that i 
would watch. Yeah, no, just as you get to the end, it's like, it's almost like, wait, are they going to be friends now? Is this Logan's next romance after Maverick? And no, absolutely no. not. They, as soon as they're done with the, the business of Garrock, they go right back to where they, they started, which is just a good tussle. Again, beautiful use of red here. The sun is white and the sky is red and Logan and Sauron are like a deeper red. It's a great, great closing panel. Beautiful. I, I like the artwork in this too. This was this was good. Yeah, this this one has a lot of great detail in the art. Contrary to the previous story, this one, they used the hatching very well to help really bring the definition into the different characters muscles into even like the trees and stuff there's just so much more detail because the black is used really sparingly compared to white and red one other thing that i i really enjoyed uh it's it's kind of a random thing but i liked the different font that sauron had for his speech bubbles yes i i think it's a really great nod to detail because sauron when he's not carl kind I imagine it's a lot of screeching. Yes. Yes. With a mouth I imagine like that. It's, yeah. I like that it's reminiscent of him spending so much time in the Savage Lands that it's almost, you know, um, a little, I guess the best way I could think of it, it's like, it's like barbaric. It's similar to how Conan's uh, letters look like. And speaking of letters, uh, yes. I'm a bastard for not mentioning this. I've gone into the creative teams for all three of these, but let's just note that the letterer for this whole issue is VC's Clayton Cowles. And and, you know, just does a bang up job uh, mm-hmm. from the dialogue to the sound effects. And it just absolutely, you know, a class in how to how to be a letterer. Yeah, everything about his letters were kind of amazing. I love the, the details he chose, how he utilized not only where he placed them, but just the fonts. Everything was really amazing choices by him. So I'm very appreciative of that. And to echo a little bit to what you did, were talking about before, Kyle, I also appreciate that this issue isn't afraid of using the color color red outside of blood we see it as a backdrop we see it as a silhouette we see it in so many different places that it's really enjoyable and nice because black and white can be great but when you're adding these like little splashes of red here and there in areas where you're not exactly expecting it i think is pretty amazing we've covered this series and i was feeling a little bit lost i was kind of like well what is what's the point of these they're like wolverine bedtime stories i don't know if i'm in for it um now that we've come to the conclusion of it you know and that it's a four-parter i i think this was really fun i think this is the kind of thing that could be collected in a hardcover and and put on your coffee table like it's it's really great art it's it's a really fun project i think you know a way of getting a lot of different creators i mean they got chris claremont they got donny cates they got chris bachalo vida ayala laroca i mean there was a lot of different hands that that touched you know these four issues and i think it was fun i think some of them are are better than others for sure i think some people understood the the assignment a little bit better than others i think some people did did some some more creative choices than others but yeah i mean it this was really fun this is like 
quintessential Wolverine slash Logan slash Patch slash Weapon X stories. And and I think it was really fun. You know, anybody that loves Logan is, is going to enjoy these. Yeah, I, I think if you remember back when I was on, I was talking about the first issue, I was not a, I was not too excited about reading these and I wasn't really sure where things were going. But as as the the series went on, I found myself liking it more and more. And now I'm 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 gonna say it. I am glad that I read this series because it really brought my eye to so many different ways of using art within a limitation in order to present these stories and it, it was it was fantastic yeah i've, I've got a thing with you know i was looking at uh, i was at the shop a couple weeks ago and i was like looking at at a at a you know a collection or whatever that was all just black and white and and by black and white i mean like literally just just inks right and to me it was very jarring because it's like i i know what these panels look like in color you know what i mean so when i'm looking at it and it's in black and white it literally feels like my eyes are broken or something you know what i mean like it's like uh finish plugging this in properly so we get the full picture so sometimes black and white is is you know just kind of throws it for me but then there's other instances where it can be done so creatively and adding that third element that that red can really make it can kind of bridge that gap you know what i mean like i'm no longer looking for the colors because now we're doing this like in a creative way i agree if you like logan and if you don't like logan i think any logan logan would enjoy this issue I said Logan just a little bit too many times there, and I figured, you know what? Just go for it. Hey everybody here, Nico, one last time, and in this last segment, Raven, Rod, and Robbie take a look at Children of the Atom from their perspective. Now last episode, we had two crews talk a little bit about Children of the Atom, and in this segment, we get another perspective, taking a look at the issue from yet another angle. It's so much fun to have multiple groups of people talk about the same issue, especially because so many different perspectives come across in each conversation. Now as always, if you guys like what you hear, you might like what you see, so don't forget to give us a subscribe over on YouTube, Twitter, or Patreon, where you guys can even help us determine where the show goes in the future and keep the lights on as always guys we love making this show for you thank you so much for listening if you like what you hear drop a review for us over on apple podcasts until next time guys enjoy this last segment keep those mutant lights lit those krakoan gateways open and we'll see ya hello everyone and welcome to the next segment of the exodus podcast i am rod you can find me at rod Kamada on twitter and instagram and today we have this raven Hello, it's your queer aunt ho auntie, art ho auntie. One of these days I'll get that right. Anyways, I am Dame Red Bento. Go ahead and put that on in. You will find me all over the place, but especially on Twitter. Come on over. Ask my opinion on something. Trust me, I'm a very chatty Kathy. <laughs> and with us, we also have Robbie. Hey, everyone. It is your favorite uh, cute bitch, Robbie. <laughs> and you can find me at Age of Hilaris on Twitter. Always hit me up if you want to talk about X-Men or Black Hat. <laughs> okay, so we all had intros prepared except for me. That's cool. All right, so we're going to talk about... 
Children of the Atom, number one, Vida Ayala is the writer. Bernard Chang is the artist. Marcelo Milo is the color artist. And BC's Travis Lanham is the letter. Oh. All right. So today we're going to go a little bit of a speed round with this. First, I want to go, I want to hit up Raven. Raven, let's go first. What was our favorite thing? Let's go around the round table and say what oh. our favorite things about this first issue was. Honestly, my 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 favorite thing about this first issue was how they treated the kids outside of being superheroes. Like it, they honestly felt like high school students, and you got to know kind of a bit about them. And honestly, I got a little bit of a feel for some of these characters. That you know, hey, me being pansexual, LBGTQ, my my radar is pretty finely tuned, and some of them kind of set off that little bit of radar there. And I'm like, oh, oh. Um, I wonder what they're going to do with this character because one of them read very like non-binary or possibly trans. So it should be very interesting to see. I definitely, I definitely see that. I'm, I'm assuming since it's, you know, it's Vida Ayala and they identify as non-binary, we'll, ho- we'll probably get some of that representation and that would mm. be nice to see. Mm-hmm. What were some of your favorite things, Robbie? Well, one of the things I did really like was showing them outside of being heroes. One really big thing I liked was seeing that side of Storm showing so much empathy and compassion. Like, let me tell you, the way Vita writes Storm is just fucking great. Like, like Vita really knows their shit when it comes to Storm. And I also just love, too, that little ex- like exchange between Jean and Storm. Like, I think towards the end of that <laughs> scene. Because mm-hmm. another thing that's really important to Storm's character is her connection to Jean. Like, they're very close, and that's something that a lot of writers over time tend to miss the opportunity to show. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, I definitely agree. I. Oh, you could go. (laughs) (laughs) You're good. (laughs) I was just going to actually agree with you, Robbie, that I... That was actually my favorite probably part of it as well. Like I like, you know, I like the the new young kids, but I feel like since this is the first issue, I'm probably gonna have to and I've we've never seen these characters. It's gonna take me a minute to really care about them. I care about like what they represent and what are what they could represent. And I like the like y'all said, um, outside of the hero-ness, like their high school moments and all of that. That was really good. Mm-hmm. But I feel like where this book really maybe unintentionally shines is how Vita writes like the main OG X-Men. Mm. And I feel like we need to give Vita more of a chance to write all these like major X-Men, you know, figures together mm-hmm. again. Because this worked really well. I feel like they really got all their voices correctly, all their exchanges correctly done. And especially bringing up the fact that you know, it doesn't get touched on a lot that Jean and Storm have this really close connection. It gets touched on, but it kind of gets forgotten sometimes because, you know, Jean has, you know, Logan and Scott. So, and then, you know, Storm has, you know, is always trying to basically find herself and is like, I got this, y'all. I don't need help. So it's it's nice to have that little, this little drinking, playing pool together, discussing what to do with these future maybe mutant people. You know, I like that moment a lot. All right, let's go with what maybe our constructive criticisms of the first issue is. Because I feel like a first issue is always kind of rocky. And 
This issue is probably more in particularly a little rocky because it was pushed back so much and probably had to be rewritten a few times because it was actually supposed to be released right before X of Swords. Mm -hmm. And that feels like such a long time ago. So I can't even imagine what they had to rewrite, you know, like the level of it. So let's go around in the circle again, and we'll start with Raven, because Raven, you are really well at critiquing things. <laughs> what would be your constructive criticism? So, okay, so like what Robbie said, how well the old school OG X-Men were, um, their dialogue, the way they interacted was really, really good. It, with the new characters, it didn't come off as cleanly when they were in hero mode. Some of it just felt a little too cheesy too mm, i don't know exactly how to put it other than it felt like their voices were mimicking the voices of their heroes or of other mutants but they didn't necessarily have a good voice of their own it's like they were trying to be somebody else and it really felt like that so like day crawlers one line quips and he's like the analog to Nightcrawler. Well, they just, they didn't land. The way Marvel Guy kind of came off as a goody-goody and he's the analog to Gene. It just, the, it didn't quite feel natural. It felt not really, it didn't feel like what they would say as high school kids who are, you know, yeah, costumed heroes and whatnot. But yeah, just, yeah, it didn't, it didn't quite connect the way I wanted to, but also that might be because we we got basically just thrown into the middle of a fight and there wasn't really any time to process the characters first. Yeah, I definitely get that. What are your constructive criticisms, Robbie? I definitely agree with a lot of that. One thing that I did wonder, because I don't really know too much about Maggot, so I was very curious as to why he would join because i get like if they're sending mutants out to like reach these kids and talk to them why they would send pixie and magma because they were teen heroes Mm -hmm. like it makes like those two Mm -hmm. make complete sense to me but i don't know a guy that like names his guts and stuff i feel like that would scare some kids (laughs) but so i don't maybe you two have different ideas as to why he would have been chosen maybe you know it was also a cool like idea at a show for maggot fans like hey here he is but i just wasn't sure about that little placement yeah the placement didn't really work for me like like you said magma pixie they made sense because you know uh teen heroes and whatnot but for for maggot it eh, i don't know just it missed it missed a beat honestly i get both of y'all's points definitely i would say um I think if it was just Vita's decision, I feel like they put Maggot in here because Maggot has, especially with some of like the X writers or just some of the Marvel like loving mutants, like uh, writers and artists and everything. They Maggot is one of the mutants that gets kind of brought up that doesn't get talked about a lot. They're like, what are your more like favorite obscure you know mutants? And some of them are like, oh Maggot's cool, and I'm like, oh yeah, we don't ever see him. So I think this was their attempt to be like, hey, well here you go, here's Maggot. <laughs> And 
I'm like, that's cool. I, when I first saw him, I was like, oh, you know, Maggot's cool. But I was like, well, why would Maggot be with Magma and Pixie? Like, I get it, because Krakoa, we're all together. That's cool. But this is like the first time we've kind of seen him, like, actually have lines, not just in the background. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this would have been a good opportunity to maybe have, like, maybe Strong Guy there, or because he's worked with Magma before, and he's probably worked mm-hmm. with Pixie before, and, like, some things. Maggot is like, you know, he is, he's blue now but he was like a black man so it's like another person of color there technically but so it's like it hits the marks but it doesn't really make sense to show this obscure non kind of hero-esque mutant to come and help kids come to the island it's like oh we don't we don't really want to go with you but maybe i don't know so (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they were trying to be like, hey, you know, here's some non, you know, human-like-ish mutants to come show the kids and to be featured, you know? Because, you know, Pixie Magma and Maggot don't don't give off the basic, you know, human um, skin, human-like features. Yeah. So maybe that was it. But yeah, I agree. It didn't really super fit. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that, like, that probably be one of my critiques is just like, just... Just the like this the this the verbiage with the kids talking yeah. with each other. And that yeah, might have been on purpose because, you know, they're kind of clunky, they're teenagers. Um, they might get more of a feel later, but mm-hmm. I feel like there's a way to to write that as being clunky and still flow or still like show that it was on purpose and like I mean, yeah. not to compare books, but like if you look at like something like Strange Academy, you have youngsters in it, teens in it, and they very much come off as teenagers. Even, you know, they, you get that kind of bashfulness from them. You get the the awkwardness from them, but it still feels really natural. Whereas this felt like somebody was just pushing a little too hard on it. But again, it's it's like, A, it's the first issue, and B, like, we're still getting a feel for all the characters, so... You know, this is just, it's a mild critique overall. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know me, I don't hold back. Oh, yeah. I don't like something. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, it's good to give critiques on art because then how would anything, you know, everything can't be the same and then not, everything isn't liked by everybody. But like, we know Vita does know how to write you know, flowing dialogue because we've seen their other work. And in this issue, we see with the OG X-Men mm-hmm. that they get oh, all their, like, perfect. their mannerisms yeah. and, you know, flowingness so much together. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. I think it's just because it's new characters. It's hard, even for an established writer to get that right sometimes. Mm. Especially with young kids. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's actually, yeah, that's that's really fair. That is very, very fair. What are we looking forward to? Because this is the first issue, by the way. We've gotten a lot of first issues. You know, we've gotten the first issues of like the first wave like marauders and all that and then the second wave of like sword next factor so this is kind this kind of feels like the the second part to the second wave which is like mm-hmm. children of the atom and we're about, we're about to get way of x soon so mm-hmm. what are y'all looking for with just like these new maybe mutants because mm-hmm. we don't know if they're mutants because according to the end it has a little cliffhanger what are y'all looking forward to these maybe mutes i I honestly want to see kind of like what's up and why why they couldn't get through the the gate like is it a are they like a clone or you know like did they take like clone cells and like put different powers together because like 
uh, what's her name? Uh, Cyclops. Uh, Cyclops Lass. Ugh, that's a mouthful right there. Uh, Cyclops Lass. She can control her beam. It like she she wears normal glasses when you know not in costume. So is is that did they like combine different powers? Are there secondary powers we don't know about just yet? Like how did they become who they are? That I'd love to know that. That's what I'm actually looking forward to. Like getting to know a bit more behind them because there's it, they've got to be something it's got to be something that's just quirky and weird and that might actually end up changing the rules of krakoa so mm. yeah I, i'm definitely excited for that what about you robbie well with them not being able to step through it it makes me wonder if that means that they were lying earlier in the issue about getting the message Ooh. yeah maybe yeah I'm also really curious to see, like, if there'll be like a big villain for this series, or if they'll if they'll do anything like that. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, the villain was inside of us all along. Um, <laughs> the, 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 villain, <laughs> the villain was our mindset, um, which which I mean, hey, could be could be something. I'm not knocking that. That could be something to touch on, especially with Krakoa, you know. But yeah, I think this is either. You know, either it's their suits or, you know, they spliced their DNA somehow or something's going on because they were acting pretty weird around when the mutants came to them from Hakoa. And, you know, this is like not their first time trying to step into the gate and being like, you know, not let in. Mm. So something, something's fishy going on. And I'm, I'm really interested to see if they're just humans trying to, you know, be mutants because they really admire them and they want to be different or if they're just enhanced people but they aren't mutants maybe they're just in because there are enhanced people that aren't mutants mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so what if enhanced people are like i want to be on the island of krakoa but i'm not a mutant that's something to touch on so maybe this is it but the robbie you bring up a good point i didn't even think of a main villain for this story and obviously we didn't get none of that in um, this first issue so I'm like, I'm, I'm like hey are we going to get a main villain for this it's interesting it's very interesting All right, well I'm excited for the next issue because I, I want things to get established more and I feel like Vita is going to do that so I'm, I'm, I'm excitingly hopeful <laughs> <laughs>